Sound Words, Christian Magazine, Volumes 41-50. Republished by Irving Risch, host of Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. Exodus, The Book of Redemption and Relationship. A. Shepherd. We will go through the entire book in 24 parts. Part 15 of 24. Exodus chapter 17. The scripture which has been repeatedly quoted in relation to previous chapters, bread shall be given him, his water shall be sure, Isaiah chapter 33 verse 16, has, in its contextual setting, special reference to the godly remnant of a future day, those fearing his name and walking in righteousness. It is not difficult to savor the sweetness of divine compassion and assurance conveyed in these words, which will sustain and strengthen the hearts of the beloved people of God as they are intended to do in a moment of extreme peril. Jerusalem, the beloved city, the city of the great king, will be under siege by the implacable enemies of God's people, intent on their extermination, even as recently avowed, and in accordance with the prediction of Psalm chapter 83. They say, Come and let us cut them off from being a nation and let the name of Israel be mentioned no more. But all the evil machinations of their enemies will come to naught as Isaiah chapter 33 verses 10 to 11 declare. Now will I arise, saith Jehovah, now will I be exalted, now will I lift up myself. The insolent foe shall not go unpunished. And the peoples, the nations gathered against Israel, shall be as burning of lime. As thorns cut up shall they be burned in the fire. We know from other scriptures that God will relieve the beleaguered city and deliver his people. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is far off, or, the land of far distances. While acknowledging its primary application to the people of God on earth in a coming day. There is an appropriateness in its application to the circumstances through which the children of Israel were passing in our present consideration of them. Moreover, all their need was met according to the unfailing compassions of God and in the full display of his power towards them. Bread had been given them, as seen in the manner rained upon them from heaven. Now, in our present chapter we shall see how their water was to be made sure. And when these things are translated into the language of grace for the instruction of a heavenly people, how incomparably great they become, as we see the manner as a type of Christ. The bread of God which came down out of heaven, and the water, as typifying the Spirit of God. All these incidents which occurred in the journeys of the children of Israel are by no means undesigned occurrences, but are intended to subserve the great purpose of God concerning the blessing of his earthly people. And also to furnish us, upon whom, the ends of the ages have come, with those invaluable types which are of the deepest significance in their application to us, for whom their accumulated wealth of blessing is reserved. Hence we are told in the first verse of our chapter that the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin, according to their journeys, at the command of the Lord. Nothing is left to chance. Nor the changeable, capricious workings of the human mind, but according to the settled purpose of God as intimated in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee, and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. From innumerable scriptures we learn how the experiences of the wilderness brought to light the hearts of the people of God. Hearts swathed in the dark and impenetrable mists of unbelief as the result of not hearkening to the word. The Apostle Paul, reminding the Hebrew Christians of how their forefathers had provoked, refers to Psalm chapter 95 and asks the solemn question, and with whom was he wrote these forty years? Was it not with those who had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to those who had not hearkened to the word? 
and we see that they could not enter in on account of unbelief, Hebrews chapter 3 verses 17 to 19. There was however a need to be met, for when they pitched at Rephidim, there was no water for the people to drink. Truly this new circumstance again exposed the inveterate unbelief of hearts that had tasted so unfailingly of the goodness of their faithful God. For the people did chide with Moses, and the people murmured against Moses. This is extremely solemn, for Moses, rebuking them for their murmuring in the previous chapter, prefers this solemn charge against them. Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. Nevertheless, God answers them in unqualified grace. Without reservation he demonstrates the magnitude and the munificence of the resources of his grace in bringing water out of the flinty rocks to satisfy their thirst. While it is unquestionably true that these circumstances, through which the children of Israel passed in their journey through the wilderness, were instrumental in bringing to light the deep-seated unbelief of their hearts. Yet it would appear that the paramount object in the mind of God was to bring them into circumstances of need so that they might learn how great and effectual was the grace of the God who had brought them to himself, and by whose word they were to live. As Moses declares in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by everything that goeth out of the mouth of Jehovah doth man live. It has already been noted that their journeys were not according to human devising but according to divine direction, as intimated in Exodus chapter 15 verse 22. And Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur, and again in the first verse of our chapter, and all the assembly of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of Sin, according to their journeys. At the command, or mouth, of Jehovah. In these divinely intentioned journeys, despite, yea, because of their murmurings and guilty unbelief, they were to see God's grace unfolded in all its wealth and sufficiency in meeting their need. Every intervention of God on their behalf bearing upon it the stamp of grace, grace that triumphs over judgment, for grace is a mightier triumph over sin than is judgment. And how great are the triumphs of grace displayed in all the varied circumstances through which the children of Israel passed, all of which have been preserved to us by the Spirit of God for our enrichment. Who have been blessed with infinitely greater blessings, nevertheless they are shadowed forth in all those remarkable types for our instruction. In all these memorable happenings we can discern how God is desirous of our being led by the Spirit into an ever-increasing knowledge of the perennial and surpassing glories of Christ. The one in whom he finds constant and unfailing delight and upon whom his eye and heart rests with deep and abiding complacency. God desires that we should enter, with an ever-enlarging apprehension, into his own thoughts concerning the preciousness of Christ, as Peter declares in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 to 7, to whom coming a living stone, cast away indeed as worthless by men, but with God, chosen, precious. To you therefore who believe is the preciousness, and as finding him to be precious to us, we realize how utterly indispensable he is for the growth and development of the life that is ours in him. This thought is strengthened and sustained by the assertions in John chapter 6 verses 53 to 57. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life eternal, for my flesh is truly food and my blood is truly drink. Then the thought of communion is introduced. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I in him. We then have the precious thought of how this life is sustained. As the living Father has sent me and I live on account of the Father. He also who eats me shall live also on account of me. We belong to that countless host, resulting from, the grain of wheat, falling into the ground and dying, and as the Spirit adds. But if it die, it bears much fruit.
This involves our complete identification with Christ in death, and thus bringing to an end what we were as after the flesh, so that in resurrection, as the quickening or life-giving spirit, he might bring us into association with himself in the new place he has taken as man, after having accomplished the work of redemption. In virtue of accomplished redemption, and in the abundance of this heavenly life, he brings us into relationship with the Father and himself, the head of this new and spiritual race. To such, being morally qualified, he imparts the spirit, thus giving ability to comport ourselves with spiritual intelligence and moral decorum in these new and heavenly relationships into which we have been brought. Moreover, he enables us to feed constantly on his death, John chapter 6 verses 54, 56, and thus to enjoy communion with the Father and himself, which is, life eternal. But this can only be realized and enjoyed as we abide in him. These words have been written with the desire of emphasizing the all-sufficiency of Christ. As John Newton, the converted slave trader, has expressed it so beautifully in the hymn, How sweet the name of Jesus sounds, our never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. And beyond all doubt, this is the desire and intention of the Spirit in bringing before us these incidents in the life of the children of Israel. As another has said, referring to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 6 and 17, the Apostle unites in the selfsame thought, the mind of God in the Word according to the Spirit. The glory of Christ who had been hidden in it under the letter, and the Holy Spirit himself who gave its force. Revealed that glory and by dwelling and working in the believer enables him to enjoy it. Christ glorified is the true thought of the Spirit which God had hidden under figures. The children of Israel ate material bread from heaven and drank material water from the flinty rock, but what is the spiritual import of these things to us? As we have already seen, Christ is the true manna, the bread of God, which has come down out of heaven. As to the interpretation of the water from the rock, we are not left to the capricious and misleading surmisings of men, but the Spirit himself has, clearly and distinctly, interpreted this for us, they drank of a spiritual rock which followed them. Now the rock was the Christ. How the Spirit would instruct us in the full knowledge of the wealth and sufficiency of this grace which found its supreme expression in Christ while every expression of it witnessed to the inexhaustible fullness of the one who administers this grace to the glory of him who is the God of all grace. Before considering the precious truths connected with the smiting of the rock, it might be profitable to note how the Spirit uses two words as though to perpetuate the sin of the children of Israel. In verse 6, God says to Moses, Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock on Horeb, then in verse 7 it states, And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they had tempted Jehovah saying, Is Jehovah among us, or not? Massa means temptation, Meribah means contention, and these names, expressly used by the Spirit, are descriptive of the moral state of the people, and indisputably proved their hardened hearts of unbelief towards God. For in chiding or contending with Moses, who was God's representative, they were veritably contending with God and putting him to the proof by doubting or virtually denying his presence among them solemn words. And there they stand today with all their solemn and seasonable admonition for our own souls. May they produce that watchfulness against every movement of the flesh, lest we too should be guilty of manifesting those morally disfiguring features of contention and unbelief. Rather let us profit thereby and, as walking in the consciousness of companionship with the Lord Jesus, be able to say with the beloved psalmist, in deep assurance of faith, for thou art with me. The one of whom he had said at the beginning of the psalm, Jehovah is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, he leadeth me beside still waters. How pregnant with divine refreshment are the words of the beloved apostle, at my first defense no man stood with me. But all deserted me. But the Lord stood with me, and gave me power. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 16 to 17. May each one of us be marked increasingly by that simple, unquestioning, childlike confidence in our faithful God, as it is written, satisfied with your present circumstances, for he has said, I will not leave thee. Neither will I forsake thee. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5. Let us now consider this remarkable scene as God stands before Moses on the rock of Horeb. How affecting this is to our hearts when spiritually interpreted according to the design of the Spirit. Moses is told, Thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand, and go. In this incident we have another instance of the grace of God rising above the sin of his people. For it was their sin which occasioned the smiting of the rock. And here too we have another aspect of the death of Christ by which we are further instructed in the immensity of blessing accruing to us as the fruit of the death of Christ. The rod in the hand of Moses was the symbol of God's power and authority, this was the rod that Moses stretched out over the Red Sea to divide it as God had commanded him. As we have already seen, the stretching forth of the rod by Moses, in which was invested the power and authority of God and which was exercised in judicial power. As indicated in the language employed in our chapter, the rod with which thou didst smite the river, was a type of the death and resurrection of Christ. The righteous means by which we are delivered completely from the enemy's power and by which we may leave the world morally, as the sphere in which he exercises his power. Christ, has been delivered for our offenses and has been raised for our justification, Romans chapter 4 verse 25. This aspect of the death of Christ is clearly set forth in baptism, according to the teaching of Romans chapter 6 verses 3 to 4, are you ignorant that we, as many as have been baptized unto Christ Jesus have been baptized unto his death. We have been buried therefore with him by baptism unto death, in order that, even as Christ was raised up from among the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also should walk in newness of life. His precious death is ours, we have died with him, and as he has died to sin and lives to God, so we, in virtue of that death, are entitled to regard ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The world is the sphere of sin, where man finds unlimited scope for the exercise of a will entirely unsubjected to the will of God. The Lord Jesus had no moral contact with such a world. There was nothing in common between him, the perfectly obedient one, and a world dominated by the will of man. In death, he has gone out of this world, and we, as having died with him, reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In the smiting of the rock we have, in type. The death of Christ in vital connection with the giving of the Holy Spirit as the power of life. In the giving of the manna we have the type of the Lord Jesus in the place of humiliation and rejection in this world. The giving of the living water depends upon his exaltation and glory. But that wonderful pathway trodden by the Son of God. A life sustained by the spirit of holiness and exhibiting in superlative degree every feature of moral excellence so precious to the Father's heart and concerning which he expressed his deep and lasting appreciation, was not the ground upon which the Spirit, as the promise of the Father, was given. A work had to be done which involved the death of the Son of God. How precious therefore are the thoughts which cluster around this scene at Mount Horeb, how affecting to the hearts of those who can say, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The smitten rock speaks to us of a crucified Saviour, and crucifixion is a penal action. 
it was not merely a martyr's death, as men speak of it, it was the death of one, when, he who knew no sin, was made sin for us, and as cur substitute, absolutely sinless in himself, was smitten with the rod of God in all its judicial and unmitigated power. Nothing was allowed to enfeeble the sense of divine wrath at the moment when he was smitten of God and afflicted, and we can discern the measure in which the sinless sufferer realized this. As expressed in the moment of his great extremity, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There was no hand put forth to stay the avenging rod, no voice to say. As in the case of Abraham and Isaac, stretch not out thy hand against the lad, neither do anything to him. Neither was there a substitute found for him, for he was the true ram of sacrifice. Displaying that energy of devotedness to the will of God even unto death, and that the death of the cross. When dealing with the question of sin. God spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. The death of God's own son was a divine necessity because of sin which had called in question every attribute of God's character. But in virtue of his atoning work, we see the conciliation of every attribute of God, for in the cross we see that loving kindness and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other, Psalm chapter 85 verse 10. God has been fully glorified according to the words of the Lord Jesus, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God also shall glorify him in himself and shall glorify him immediately, John chapter 13 verses 31 to 32. How blessed to have our attention drawn by the Spirit of God to the smiting of the rock as indicative of the unexampled sufferings of Christ, where the sin of man reached its fullest expression. And the love of God, supreme in goodness, surmounted and surpassed the hatred of men, for he was given up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. He was alone in that dark hour. As that sparrow alone upon the housetop. He had looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but found none. His was a loneliness that none could share, and with which none could sympathize, for they did not understand. The work of atonement, as typified in the smitten rock, is now accomplished, and on the ground of this the Spirit has been given. He opened the rock and the waters gushed forth, they ran on the dry places like a river, Psalm chapter 105 verse 41. It is worthy of note that Horeb means the dry place. Only when the rock was smitten could the waters gush forth, and not before, in order to meet and satisfy the need of the thirsty multitude. The smiting of our living rock, which is Christ, has provided us with a spring of refreshment and power as eternally satisfying and inexhaustible as the source from which it flows. The heart of a God whose name is love. The water which flowed from the rock is the symbol of the Holy Spirit. It has been said that all streams carry with them the witness of their source and the soil through which they flow. The presence of the Spirit of God in this world, according to the words of the Lord Jesus, is the mighty and irrefutable witness to his glorification at the right hand of the Father. And I will beg the Father, and he will give you another comforter, and he may be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him nor know him. But ye know him, for he abides with you and shall be in you, John chapter 14 verses 15 to 17. The Spirit being here is the fruit of accomplished redemption and our acceptance before God in all the abiding efficacy and value of that accepted work. And by which the floodgates of the heart of a Saviour God are opened wide to pour streams of grace, of life, and of unutterable blessing upon a barren and thirsty world. Before this work of redemption, the heart of God was in measure restrained in expression, though not in its disposition to bless. 
the momentous question of sin had to be righteously resolved in order that his glory as a saviour God might be secured and demonstrated in grace to men. In the light of this, how precious to read these imperishable words written by the Spirit, and Jesus, having again cried with a loud voice, gave up his spirit, and lo! The veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom, Matthew chapter 27 verses 50 to 51. God, now no longer hidden in thick darkness as when his people were under law, immediately comes forth in fullness of grace toward men. The result of the smiting of the rock was that water came out of it. Such is the amazing result of the death of Christ, that God can give us his Holy Spirit. No doubt with a burdened conscience and a deep sense of guilt as having to do with a sin-hating God, our great concern is for the forgiveness of sins and relief from this intolerable burden. But having experienced this relief, how soul-sustaining for every true child of God to consider the death of Christ in relation to the giving of the Spirit. The Spirit dwelling in us is the Spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba Father, and, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit, that we are the children of God, Romans chapter 8 verses 14 to 16. The Spirit of God has come down as the fruit of accomplished redemption and of our acceptance in the Beloved and brings us consciously into the enjoyment of our new relationship in accordance with the words of our Lord Jesus, In that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. John chapter 14 verse 20. The Spirit engages our hearts with Christ and with the Father, so that communion with the Father and the Son is our present portion, known and enjoyed in the Spirit's power who also enables us to respond to the love of the Father and the Son, and in this our joy is full. How great are the divine resources available to us as having the presence and power of the Spirit. Yet the truth of this is a constant rebuke to our feeble apprehension of it, for as having the Spirit dwelling in us as the power for testimony. There should flow from us rivers of living water, for the blessing and refreshment of others. May we be encouraged in knowing that the vessel is not the measure of the stream. God gives not the Spirit by measure. This was said in connection with the Lord Jesus who had come from heaven, though ever the Son of Man who is in heaven, in order to bear witness of those heavenly things, the things which he had seen and heard. John had borne witness of earthly things, but the testimony of Jesus, who is above all, had reference to heavenly things, and, as sent of God, his testimony was the testimony of God. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives not the Spirit by measure, John chapter 3 verse 34. Every true believer in Christ is indwelt by this selfsame Spirit, who is the power for the intelligent apprehension and enjoyment, in responsive affection of those heavenly relationships with the Father and the Son, and the power whereby we bear witness of these heavenly things, for the blessing and refreshment of others. The remaining verses of the chapter bring before us a new foe, and yet one too well known to those who are the people of God, and conflict with whom is regrettably an all too constant experience to our spiritual detriment and loss. Amalek is referred to as being typical of the flesh as will or lust. It should be noted when Amalek came and fought with Israel. The connection is very solemn and commands our prayerful consideration since it bears vitally upon those who walk according to spirit and not according to flesh. Verses 7 and 8 give us not merely the literal connection but also the moral connection. In the former verse, it reads, And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The language of verse 8 suggests a consequence. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. From this we can observe that the moral connection is not between the gift of water from the smitten rock and Amalek's onslaught.
but between the unbelief of the people and Amalek's attack. This conflict is not of God's proposing, but is the result of the lack of faith in active exercise toward God. In the absence of this we fall an easy prey to this ever-watchful enemy who gains the ascendancy over us with all that is a positive hindrance to the formative work of the Spirit in us. God does not call to this conflict. He did not say, seek out Amalek and destroy him, but Amalek, the power of the adversary acting through the flesh, seeks out Israel, and it was Israel's unbelief which exposed them to attack. How appropriate therefore the exhortation of the apostle, he does not say, war against fleshly lusts, but beloved, I exhort you, as strangers and sojourners, to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11. If we would abstain, there would be no warfare, but if not, fleshly lusts, under the powerful stimulus of the enemy. War against us and we are entangled by those things which hinder us in our onward march to the possession of our inheritance. The lusts of the flesh would have no hold over us, did we but walk in the practical realization of death with Christ to sin. By faith, reckoning ourselves dead indeed unto sin, as we are bound and entitled to do. Thus this character of conflict would be unknown to us. The Apostle Paul stresses this thought in the words, he that has died is justified from sin. A dead man cannot be charged with sin or sins, this is faith's reckoning of course, but real and necessary. May we live more and more in the power of faith's reckoning, that we have died with Christ, and thus give no place to the flesh and its lusts. This reckoning is faith's prerogative as it is our privilege and our duty. God, in his surpassing grace, has not left us to our own devices in the resisting and overcoming of this foe. A new leader is appointed, none other than Joshua, Jah, the Saviour, who is here a type of the Lord Jesus, who, as leader, is bringing those many sons to glory. With such a leader there can be no thought of temporizing with the enemy, no thought of defeat, or of compromise, or of surrender. Supreme and sustained courage is necessary in which to wage this conflict, as Paul exhorts us, quit yourselves like men, be strong. Our leader will not fail us. It is Christ in the energy of the Spirit which is distinctively set forth in Joshua, leading us into the present, practical apprehension of our portion in those heavenly places into which he has gone. As those who have been made to, sit down together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. It is well, however, to remember the words written by Moses regarding the coming of Amalek. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way, when ye were come out of Egypt, how he met thee on the way, and smote the hindmost of thee, all the feeble that lag behind thee. When thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God, Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 17 to 18. Does this not suggest some evidence of decline? For when they were brought out of Egypt in all the triumph of a divinely wrought salvation, the psalmist tells us that there was not one feeble among their tribes, Psalm chapter 105 verse 37. How all-sufficing is God's provision for the wilderness, the manna and the springing well suffice for every need. But it is only as we appropriate this rich provision as food for our souls that we can be maintained in spiritual energy and freshness, otherwise we become enfeebled spiritually. And it is then we are assailed by Amalek, the adversary acting in all his subtle power through the flesh, and so our progress is retarded. How essential therefore is such a leader in order to be victorious over every movement of this enemy. A positive and sustained link with Christ in the scene to which he has gone is necessary for successful warfare in this scene. The appearance of Joshua fittingly follows the water from the rock, a type, as we have seen, of the ministry of the Spirit. Here, as has also been pointed out, we see how Canaan experience coalesces with wilderness experience for the believer of this present dispensation.
while, in a certain sense, wilderness experience may precede Canaan, yet for our successful crossing of these desert lands, onto the actual possession of our inheritance, the two must go together. We want the positive enjoyment of the portion that is ours in the heavenlies in Christ in order to be really pilgrims and strangers in this world. Is it not of great moment that these types teach us this in a very remarkable way? But more than the inspired leadership of Joshua, representative of Christ acting in us in the energy of the Spirit of God, is necessary for the overthrow of Amalek. Success with Joshua on the plain is dependent on the activities of Moses on the hilltop before God, for if Moses' hand was raised, Israel prevailed, if it was let down, Amalek prevailed. In order therefore to support Moses in that attitude which ensured victory to Israel, a stone was placed under him, while Aaron and Hur supported his hands with the rod of power, the rod of God. As significantly stated here, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua broke the power of Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Moses is here a type of Christ, as he is principally throughout the history of the children of Israel, but here as representative of him who, is not entered into the holy places made with hand, figures of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear before the face of God for us, one who carries on without ceasing his present service of intercession on our behalf. Whence also he is able to save completely those who approach by him to God, always living to intercede for them, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. In the supporters of Moses' hands we have typified what characterized the Lord Jesus as our great high priest, as set forth in Aaron, one of whom we can say. For we have not a high priest not able to sympathize with our infirmities, but tempted in all things in like manner, sin apart, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. In her, meaning, purity, or, light, we have the Lord Jesus presented as the one who fully displays the character of God, as light. Here we have, on the one hand, mercy towards man, and, on the other, righteousness Godward, suggesting at once the scripture in 1 John chapter 2 verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It is well that it was, with the edge of the sword, Joshua discomfited his enemies. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God, which, is living and operative, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. This is necessary for self-judgment, which is really the judgment of our foes. Our Amalek is within, our hearts are the battleground. Let us again remember that we are not called to this conflict, it is we, who, at a distance from the Lord through unwatchfulness, expose ourselves to Amalek's attack. Yet, how gracious of our God to have furnished us with the means of meeting the attack, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall in no way fulfill flesh's lust. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, and these things are opposed one to the other, that ye should not do those things which ye desire, Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 to 17. The path for us, according to the mind of God, is the happier path of those who have died unto sin once, and live unto God. Amalek is not destroyed, the flesh is still in us, though in our standing before God we are no longer in flesh but in spirit. In Philippians, the epistle of true Christian experience, the flesh is mentioned only once, in order to say we have no confidence in it, for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God. And boast in Christ Jesus, and do not trust in flesh, Philippians chapter 3 verse 3. May we know something of this in our walk from day to day.